uh, you have a page there in your worship folder on for some notes if you want to take uh, follow along on on the sermon outline. We will be in Matthew chapter three, and for the next uh, five six Sundays, be looking at this uh, first couple of chapters here, Matthew three and four, with Jesus uh, heading out into the wilderness to be tempted uh, by uh, by Satan. So, will you join me in prayer? Let's let's come before the Lord and let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, we are before you who can transform these moments into moments of uh, deliverance for us, uh, of power, uh, moments where we are brought uh, low to know again and again how desperately we need a Savior. So, Lord, in these moments, I pray uh, you will receive my, uh, my loaves and my fish. Uh, I don't... Uh, have a lot of my own, uh, I can bring very little. But Lord, uh, you can multiply uh, these efforts and uh, prove yourself faithful to us as a congregation. We would ask that you would do that, that we could see you more clearly, uh, understand your beauty more deeply, and be motivated uh, to love you uh, more sincerely. And in Christ's name, we come to you, uh, we exclaim to you our need. Uh, in his name we pray, amen. I do want to remind you that, uh, that in a couple of weeks, uh, we are going to have a great weekend on the 24th, 25th, and 26th with Scotty Smith with us for the marriage conference. And then he will be preaching here on Sunday morning, the 26th. And um, I am looking forward to that feast uh, in the gospel, and uh, again, encourage you to just be part of all those events that are taking place. Well, uh, preparing for ministry, uh, I thought this would be a good series to do when we talk about the beginning of a, of a year, a new year, 2014, and uh, ministry. What, I wonder what comes to mind when you think about ministry. Uh, there's, a, there's a common assumption uh, with, in, church, in churches that uh, ministry might be something that the, the professional up front does. The, the one who went to seminary, the one who's set apart, um, perhaps uh, ordained, as we would encourage uh, uh, people who are uh, ministers in the PCA to be ordained and uh, uh, duly examined and trained uh, and, and called of God to, to proclaim the word of God. But there's a, there's a sort of a professionalization of this uh, ministry so that... The congregation is largely passive, and uh, the minister is the one who does ministry, right? Well, um, that's not really how it all works. Um, we, we find that in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 10, 11, and following, that the Apostle Paul says that God gave gifts to the church, uh, particularly the gift of pastor, uh, to equip the saints, uh, that's you, uh, for the work of, of ministry, for the work of service. So the work and the tasks, the, the, the feet, uh, are, are your feet. Um, the minister is encouraging and proclaiming a gospel that motivates the church to be mobilized. Now, um, to get the church mobilized is a, is a big deal. Um, to get people who might think it's, it's rather a passive role that they play, to get them motivated to 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 do ministry is a big deal. It's, it's not always easy. And years ago, um, 
uh, people realized that maybe it was a problem of people not understanding their spiritual giftedness, right? So each of you, if you are a believer here today, you have been given at least one spiritual gift. And uh, these come alongside usually your natural, uh, natural given talents. And uh, so say something like, if you like, if you like supporting things and getting behind something and doing details for something, you might have the gift of helps. That's actually a spiritual gift. This might also be part of your personality. You just love this. You love to support efforts and come alongside. And so small tasks, uh, tasks that are not necessarily up front, these tend to be your, your, the things you love. And so the church came up with these things called spiritual gift inventories. And maybe some of you remember these. These were like the big deal years ago in the church. Spiritual gift inventories, and sometimes you'd have these special meetings where there'd be training going on, and you would go through these pages and pages and pages to figure out, oh, I have the gift of helps, or I have the gift of leadership, or I have the gift of teaching. And so you would, you would do this, and so the church would get mobilized to get the right people in the right place. Um, no one ever said they had the gift of junior high ministry, though. Just, that was... It's always one of my observations. Um, but it was interesting. Uh, I was part of a church at the time where we were really big into these spiritual gift inventory test things. And uh, we had a meeting, and someone in, in the back raised their hand and said, Look, I think this is all well and good. Uh, this is fine. But someone's got to be the congregation around here. Now, if you don't get the... <laughs> you don't get, that is just like... that is. That is quite insightful into that person's understanding of church. I have the gift of congregating. So that, that's what I do. Um, there is no gift of congregating, just, just to be perfectly clear. So, um, but that tells you a bit about the, the thought that perhaps more than one person in the church uh, had, and that is that it was a rather a passive view of their role in the body of Christ and their role in ministry. And uh, I, I think it's really important that anytime we are gathered together and there is instruction going on, which is happening right now, uh, it is to be instruction for the equipping of the saints. So it isn't that you go away and say, wow, wasn't that eloquent? Or wow, wasn't that organized? Or I just like that preaching. That, in fact, that, if that is the effect of the preaching, it's a, it sort of falls short of the biblical standard. It should be, oh, I enjoyed that equipping, so I now f- more fully see what it looks like to serve my great God. See, so equipping is one of the great goals. In fact, uh, you'll notice when Brandon or Nathaniel or our ministry intern, Joel, when we are instructing up here, we're actually trying not to make you dependent on us. We're trying not to make it so complicated and so difficult, and I haven't been to seminary, and who am I to say, and I didn't know that the original Greek meant that, and oh, and so I am always dependent upon the professional. We don't want to do that. We want you to know your Bible is reliable, you can understand it, and we want you to be, uh, have a vibrant connection with the Scriptures yourself, 
And our role is an exhortation role. Our role is a, a role of, of encouraging you and exhorting you to, to, um, to live out the gospel, right? So now to get started here, I want you to know that this passage, I just love this passage, uh, Matthew 3, where Jesus is, as Brandon mentioned to the children, he is openly associating with sinners though he does not need to confess any sin. And he is participating in John, uh, John who was this prophet, um, John the Baptist, in, in his ministry. His ministry was the authorized ministry at that moment. It was of God. Uh, in fact, Jesus said of all the prophets, John is the greatest. And um, so Jesus uh, submits to the authorized herald out there in the wilderness and his ministry as all of Israel was called to do. But what I want you to, to see in this passage is a number of things. But here's the, something very simple I want you to understand is that the gospel is on display in this passage in a couple of ways. We have Jesus, of course, taking on the role of a servant, and we'll talk about that, a servant who will bear the sins of his people and forgive their sins and he will through his life be what we cannot be he will live a life we cannot live he will obey God's law which we cannot obey and he will fulfill what Adam failed to fulfill he will be righteous before God as a human being was intended to be, and in this sense he gains righteousness, kind of an odd thing to think about when you think about Jesus, he gains righteousness, and he delivers his perfect life to the Father as an offering on behalf of sinners. So if you are claiming Jesus as your Savior today, uh, one key aspect of that one side of it is the forgiveness of sins. Another positive side of it is more the positive side, and that is the righteousness of Jesus. These things are both key aspects of the gospel. So it's, uh, it's, it's taking care of your guilt and taking, taking care of what you, what you owe to God is really a death. Uh, the wages of sin is death. And so through Jesus Christ, you have that death. And then... Uh, God comes along and says, well, where is righteousness, uh, obedience to all my commands? And we don't have that. But through Jesus, we are righteous. And so these two aspects are critical to our salvation. And these are now beginning to become, become visible in the ministry of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to know that he's coming after the poor in spirit, and we're going to find that they cannot uh, take care of the guilt that they have, and they cannot be righteous before a holy God. Now, I, I want this to be really practical and, and very equipping for you this morning, so I want to give you an illustration that you can keep in your back pocket because I think all of us should be able to explain the gospel in a very simple way that helps people at the office, neighbors, uh, people you're related to, helps, helps them understand and so here's what I'd like you to get right off the bat, and, uh, and here's, where, here's how it goes. 
I want you to imagine that you owe a million dollars to the bank. Uh, you went to the bank and you had a business idea and they bought into it. So you needed a loan for your business adventure. And uh, you got distracted on, on the way to building your great business and you, uh, you stopped in Vegas for a while. And something happened. You lost all that money. And the bank uh, keeps sending you these monthly statements uh, to pay off your, your loan, and it's crazy. They, they think that you're going to honor your commitment to all that borrowed money. And so you begin to notice that these, these payments keep piling up, and uh, then finally the bank calls you in for a meeting, and you have a meeting with the trustees. And then they discover what you did with their money. And uh, you are financially poor in spirit. You, you don't have what they are requiring of you. Okay, so um, you, you, you hear the threats from them, and they say, we are going to take every law on the books and throw it at you. This is terrible, what you've done. And uh, you uh, grovel on your way out to the car. You, can't, uh, you don't, can't even think straight. What's going on with my life? This is terrible. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen. And just as you're about to, to pull away from the parking lot of the bank, the bank uh, has sent out a person to talk to you. And they explain to you something f- unbelievable has happened, that um, those trustees that you just met with who were just about to throw every law on the book at you, they have forgiven your debt. Uh, I've never seen this before, but there you go. Um, your debt is forgiven. And uh, you just, wow, you're just exhilarated and just, you can't, this is phenomenal. And then, then the person says, and, and then something incredible just happened. Uh, at the, the next step in the meeting was that they decided that you had a real problem with money. And they wanted to fix that permanently. So they have just transferred all of the assets of this bank, $8.9 billion, into your account. Is that enough for you? Now, what just happened there was an explanation of the gospel. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins, and it's the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. And um, in, in, uh, in some churches, they kind of get that first one really, really good, and it's all about the forgiveness of sins. And then that righteousness thing is kind of foggy and a little, little misty. We want to get both those right. And that is what is what's unfolding here in this passage is that you're beginning to see that someone has come to serve us, to take care of our sin, and to give us something that we could not gain and to have that credited to our account. And for us to experience it, for us to know this, for us to encounter that, for us to embrace the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us, if we truly get it, if we do understand it, it is impossible to hear that and be passive. If you are passive, you don't understand. It's just like trying to convince someone of the best restaurant on Oahu, and, you, and they just go, I don't know, I'm going to go to Burger King. I don't know, sorry. And, what, and as you walk, they just don't get it. I, I wasn't able, to, I, I, 
right? If you've ever tried to explain something to someone that was, this is the most beautiful, incredible thing, you need to go to this spot, see the sunset here, you need to go to this restaurant, this is a place to visit, and they just don't get it, they I don't know, I'm, I'll go to the Motel 6, that's fine. They don't, you were not either persuasive enough or they couldn't quite imagine it. And God's work of renewal is for us to imagine more clearly what's, what's happened in Jesus Christ. And for us to get it, we have to enter into a place that is not normally where we want to be, and that is to be poor in spirit. And um, I think that this passage is about the poor in spirit. I think it's about Jesus identifying with the poor in spirit. Those are those who who gathered around John's ministry uh, in the wilderness. I think he identifies with the poor in spirit. I think, secondly, he pursues what the poor in spirit don't have. And then I think, finally, he bears the grease of the poor in spirit. Uh, and so we're going to look at those, those three, uh, three key ideas. First of all, in, uh, in uh, Matthew 3, there are a lot of people gathering. Um, Matthew uh, makes it clear that everybody, everybody is gathering uh, out along the banks of the Jordan River. They're going out into the wilderness. Um, not a lot of restaurants out there. Uh, not a lot of places to, uh, uh, to take creature comforts. They're out there in the wilderness listening to uh, a preacher who is uh, fire and brimstone. Uh, he's saying that the end uh, is near and uh, time is running out. And he's preaching to Israel and uh, he's warning uh, them about their apostasy. They're turning away from the living God. And he is the forerunner of the Messiah. And uh, he, is dr- he has a drawing power. He has a drawing power in his message. And uh, who were those who accepted John's baptism? Who were those? Who, who were those who came and were willing to receive that kind of preaching? They were willing to say, that's me. You got it. I've disregarded the living God. I've lived in rebellion against him. Uh, That's me. Uh, I agree. Uh, And I'm willing to undergo the the waters of baptism. It's interesting, the, the, the development of this concept of baptism really developed in between that old, the Old Testament and the New Testament, what has been called the intertestamental period. And it arises out of this, uh, this practice that began where, where people who wanted to become Jews embraced Judaism. Um, they would be trained, they would be catechized, and they would be given uh, instruction. But uh, this practice was a, a practice of a cleansing ritual, a cleansing rite, that was to communicate to them that they are in such need of God's uh, work of transformation that they need to be washed, you see? They need to be washed. Uh, they, they need to be cleansed. And so this was something that developed uh, prior to John's ministry and something that pr- developed prior to the ministry of Jesus. And what's interesting is that this was a, a cleansing rite, um, if you will, and what those who were being baptized by John were willing to say about themselves is this. My heart has been as dead as a non-Jew. 
My rebellion against God has been as real as the pagans. I'm willing to undergo what we would do for them if they were to embrace Judaism. And so when Jesus associates with these who are of this heart attitude, they're saying that there is no core difference between themselves and other people. Does that not characterize the early church? That these were big sinners who needed a big savior, and Jesus associates with these because these are people of the kingdom. Blessed are, are the poor in spirit, the first beatitude of Matthew 5, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Jesus, the next, next question is, why does Jesus join this group? Jesus is expressing that he is content to be among the powerless who must depend upon God alone to lift them up. He identifies with the poor in spirit who must look to God alone to rescue them, to comfort them. He himself lives as dependently as they do. And we will learn that Jesus lives dependently upon the Father for everything. So what's one implication, at least thus far, in this Matthew 3 passage for us? Uh, I think Jesus is our pace setter here. Uh, Let me be clear that we try not to, to at all present the Bible as a book of moral instructions just to make you more morally wise. We don't present Jesus, Jesus as an example for us to follow. Uh, we present him as a savior to embrace. Now, there's no doubt Jesus is an extraordinary example, but an example by himself, he is very frustrating because we cannot imitate him. So the gospel is a, an announcement. It's not a uh, sort of like a military... The Bible is not a military sort of uh, code book on how to conduct the war. The Bible is an announcement that the war is over. <laughs> uh, Jesus, Jesus won, so it's like that, but it has more pages than that. <laughs> but, but it's an announcement. And it's really, really hard for us, see? Uh, even when I was preparing this week and putting putting together my thoughts, I went, can Jesus preach again? Oh, I'd sure love to just give like six tidbits of wisdom or six dynamic keys to the amazing life or something like that. Uh, can, can we just, is it, does it work again to just listen and watch, to, to, to just watch Jesus? Is, is that enough? See, there's something in us that, uh, you, you'll notice there isn't a single command for us in, in, in Matthew 3. If you can find one, um, you're not to obey John the Baptist. He's off the scene. There's not a single command for us to obey in, 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 in Matthew 3. There's nothing for you to do. And all you have to do is watch and listen. But never believe that just watching Jesus and listening to the gospel ever leads to a passive understanding of the Christian life. It doesn't. It can't. And so um, when we read the gospels, 
we are seeing the Spirit of God moving in and through Jesus Christ, and that same Spirit is among us. This is Jesus who who engages the poor in spirit. We think of the, the woman at the well in John 4. There's a movement in the gospel we need to wrestle with. I need to wrestle with this. Jesus is our pace setter moving toward the poor in spirit. And I would long to have, I think the elders here would long to have a church where it becomes odd to think that you have the gift of congregating. That's like, what, what do you mean by that? That you're so renewed by the gospel, so impressed with the beauty and love of God that you are motivated to serve him. It becomes an odd thing to not be involved. And so this leads us to our second idea, Jesus as our pace setter. He pursues what the poor in spirit don't have. Well, this is found in the conversation that Jesus has with John the Baptist. It's it's found there in verses 13 and following. John uh, wonders, what on earth am I doing? Uh, I'm the sinner. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is a big issue in the human heart. In fact, uh, when you think about the Pharisees who show up at this event, uh, and they, we learn a lot about them in the Gospels, uh, the Pharisees are challenged at the, at the level of their righteousness. And uh, the Pharisees are willing to admit they're sinners. They, they, are, they, will, they, they embrace that. But they're not willing to admit that even the good things they've done fall short. You see, Jesus challenges them through and through. Like you don't bring anything to the ledger between yourself and God. And that's what uh, they said, no, no, these things must count for something. I must have some righteousness, you see. And religion, uh, popular ideas almost always have some level of righteousness to them. Uh, And quite frankly, it can be something like yoga or vegetarianism or... it it can be anything, really. It can be irreligion. It can be religion. It can be righteousness. In other words, this makes me okay. See what I'm saying? Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank in our culture. What makes makes us okay culturally today? Who's living the good life? Um, Even within the church, what makes us okay? Um, Righteousness is actually a source for arguments. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it is a, a big issue. And think about, the, think about this question. What was the root of your last argument? What were you arguing about? Someone offended you. Someone didn't acknowledge your expertise. Someone didn't acknowledge how you clean the house. Someone didn't acknowledge something about you. And it hurt. It bothered you. And you easily attached yourself to that task. See? And somewhere in there is a, a sense of, don't you know that made me okay as a person? Don't you know that? Don't you know that how I'm raising our children and all the work I put into this or that makes me okay? Uh, churches, ho- whole churches can be shaped by the pursuit of a certain kind of righteousness. 
And um, it's only Jesus who is righteous. He's the only one. Um, the contemporary church uh, can be righteous about how up-to-date they are. Um, the problem is, though, that even with contemporary songs, that hot song from, let's say, December this last year, it's already dated. It's, that's from last year. So the up-to-date church is almost always out of date so quickly. Well, then there's other churches that say, well, we pride ourselves in being out of date. That's what you're supposed to be. So we glorify the 16th century or something like that. Okay? And so all the quotes and all the sermons are all about this glorious golden age from long ago. And if we'd only get back to that age, we'd be okay. And then there's a group that even trumps that group. And that's called the primitive church. And they're trying to get back to Acts chapter 2, walking with sandaled feet with Jesus on the beach. It's actually true. Simple, simple, simple. And so every group seems to try to outrighteous the other group. And there's a, it goes on and on, different nuances and different ways in which we want to be seen in a certain way. It's not, it's not any... It just, just doesn't seem to work to just show up and say, well, I'm poor in spirit. What are you? You know, I mean, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's much more exciting to have like, like the, the Bible code book for the end of the world, you know, like here it is right here. Didn't you know that? Well, you hang on to my CD series and you, you'll know all the answers. See, to be poor in spirit doesn't sell. To be poor in spirit doesn't market well. To be poor in spirit doesn't do anything, you see, and that's the whole point. And Jesus says, that's what I want. That's what I produce in people, to be poor in spirit. That's exactly the goal of it. And uh, if, <laughs> if you're not poor in spirit, you can't produce this in yourself. You can't make yourself poor in spirit. But if you're, if you're, if you're not poor in spirit, you, you can't see what you don't see. You, you, you can't see it. You can't experience it. You can't make yourself into this. But it is a work of God to have people sit under the authority of the word of God and say, yes, that describes me. Yes, I am poor. Yes, John, describe me. Yes, I am like one who doesn't even know God and I need to be cleansed. That's me. I actually enjoy talking with people who want to be rebaptized. I don't think you need to. Your baptism, if it was a Trinitarian baptism, it... It's, it's okay, and you've grown up and you, you entered into the promises that were given in your baptism, but I love hanging around people who are, there's an awakening and a renewal in their heart, and it's so real they want to be rebaptized. I like that. And to help them understand that, that baptism wasn't, always, wasn't connected to just how well you remember it, but God had his hand upon you and put his name on you before you were aware of even your own name. And he chased you down, and now you're aware of it. And now, what is it like? I am, I'm poor in spirit, and I want, I want the waters of baptism to cover me again, because this is who I am, one who needs to be cleansed. So, um, what heart attitude prevents ministry? Well, the heart attitude that prevents ministry is, there's two kinds of people who show up really here at at the baptism of John, the Pharisees and the poor in spirit. 
The Pharisees show up and have no intention of listening to John. They're there to make a show. Apparently our crowd has gone out to the Jordan, so let's go out to the Jordan. They are there to make sure that they don't lose their followers. But they are not going to exchange the thinking in their head about God and their righteousness. The poor in spirit are there to exchange their heart attitude, the thoughts in their mind, and they are there to listen to John and make John's words their words. So what heart attitude prevents ministry It's a, and, and prevents ministry involvement? It is this. I don't need to exchange anything. I don't need to exchange my rags for his riches. They're not really rags. They count for something. I don't need to exchange my righteousness. I don't need to see my poverty. But ministry really is about helping people say goodbye to their righteousness seeking. It's helping them say goodbye to it. And we live in a culture and a time when there's a great emphasis upon being seen in a certain way. Uh, I'm updating on social media in order to be seen in a certain way. There's something about us that we are living through the responses of others. We have to be something. We are striving to be something. And really, the Pharisees are saying we are already what we need to be because we are connected to Abraham ethnically. And John says God can make stones to become children of Abraham. Your DNA counts for nothing. And you see, we just don't... What heart attitude prevents ministry is we will not go to the sinner's place. Ministry is connecting with people and being there when what they have longed to be doesn't work. And people are experiencing this all the time in our day and age. They've been striving to be something. And ultimately, you know, you know it won't work. You are an insider into the soul of struggling people. You know more than you probably give yourself credit for. You know the human experience of striving to be And the cry of the poor in spirit say, I cannot be enough, and I never could be enough. And this is an entry point for conversation. I know my failed record. I know my hard heart. I know my indifference. I know I can't qualify or gain God's attention. I know I am spiritually bankrupt through and through. Blessed are you if you have found yourself spiritually poor like this. Blessed are you if you think you are far from the kingdom because you are closer than you imagine. May that help shape our church culture to to realize that the poor in spirit, you have been given righteousness. Never could have been earned, but it is yours, and your heavenly Father is not ashamed to give it to you.
And it is the righteousness, as Romans 3 says, it is the righteousness from God accredited to you, given to you on your account. It is how the Father is pleased with you. And he wants to make sure Sunday after Sunday, small group after small group, a conversation after conversation within the church that you are convinced of his love for you. So, uh, again, a few more implications for ministry. Uh, When you are interacting with someone who is uh, struggling, someone who's anxious, someone who's worried, someone who's depressed, someone who's frustrated, someone who's despairing. Those are big ideas and big concepts. What we have to give them is the success of a Savior. We have to give them the accomplishments of Jesus on their behalf And the hope for them is locked up in everything that God has done through Christ. And so that they have hitched the the wagon of their life to the one who will ultimately bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And they, in the end, don't have to be anything more than the one who receives Jesus again and again. So this leads us lastly to one thing that this passage, I think, instructs us on, and that is Jesus is a pace setter because he bears the griefs of the poor in spirit, and he lives in the Father's love. In verse 16, the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus uh, after he comes out of the water with John. Um, It's possible, by the way, just by way of the mode of baptism, it, might, it sounds like there was an immersion going on there, like the, the John brought the body of Jesus under, under the water. It's also possible that they just went out into the water in order to grab water and to place water over the head of Jesus. Coming out of the water, something remarkable happens. The Spirit of God comes in the motion of a dove. Notice it says, like a dove. And uh, you can't think of a, of a more gentle creature than the dove. Think of the symbolism of the dove on the other side of, of Noah um, and, the, and the great raging judgment of God. We think of the hovering, the hovering, this hovering motion that, that must, must have been seen by, by those there. And the Spirit now rests upon Jesus. He's, in a sense, in, endued or empowered with the Spirit in a special way. As the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters at creation and formed the creation, now the Spirit of God hovers upon the one who will bring the new creation. A new age is is coming upon the earth. A, A world of restored beauty is coming through Jesus. The voice then comes. The voice of God, that God directly wrote the Ten Commandments. God directly spoke creation into being. And now the Father speaks directly. Can you imagine being there, what it was like? And the heavens opened. And the voice says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Why is the Father pleased? What is it about the Son that, that needs this, this statement? 
And I would suggest to you that the Father's approval rests upon the Son because in this action of associating with sinners, he is becoming the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about. And Isaiah 53 is now beginning to become embodied. He is now bearing the griefs of sinners. He is now out there in the wilderness, and he is going to be the faithful one who will withstand the testings in the wilderness contrary to the unfaithful Israel. He will be faithful as the second Adam here in the wilderness contrasted with the unfaithful Adam in paradise. He will have no human support. He will have nothing in human nature to rely upon. Ultimately, his disciples will abandon him at the cross. But he will have always and continually the Father's approval And that will be enough. So, Jesus is our pace setter. The Spirit is upon him. And now the Father has spoken his approval. What is it that the poor in spirit are really asking for? They're asking for relief. If you've ever been been under, under preaching that brings conviction... Have you ever sensed that the law of God is bearing down upon you and that your guilt can't be removed and you can't do anything about it? What do you need? You need relief. You need hope. And that's why Jesus is now the center of the story. This is the one in whom I am well pleased because he will bring relief to these people. John the Baptist can't in all his preaching bring relief. He brings only law. But through my son... The grace of forgiveness will be granted. It's amazing. You see, what's actually happening here is that in many ways, God is saying his, his amen to his son. The prophets all gave promises. This is what he'll be like. This is what he'll do. This is what he'll say. He'll bear their griefs. And Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, amen, to the glory of God through us. The Father is saying, Amen. This is the one. He's the culmination of all that the faithful prophets have said would come. Surely he bore our griefs, Isaiah 53, 4 says, and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. That's what the poor in spirit need. They need peace. The Father is pleased because the Son will bring about the benediction of the Father that needs to rest upon sinners. You see, sinners used to gather in front of the tent of the tabernacle and they had brought their their sacrifice and the priest will have gone and it would have been consumed in fire and the priest would come back with a word of blessing to the people. They're anxious. They want to know maybe why they lost a a child. They want to know what the future might be for their family. They're, uh, they're, They're uncertain about what will God come through and the priest would come and give them the benediction the blessing of God that would rest upon them. They'd come with poorness of spirit, 
aware that they violated God's law. And the priest would come and raise his hands over them and say, but it is, it is not so with God. He's received your sacrifice for this moment. And his peace is upon you. Listen to the blessing that we are to live in, that Jesus ushers in, that the Father speaks of here at his baptism, but now rests upon us. Number six, we hear this, the Levitical priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. He's smiling upon you. He's not ashamed of you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you, give you peace. And that's what Jesus says to the poor in spirit. Blessed are you. Be at peace. For yours is the kingdom of God. May this mobilize us. Mobilize us as a church. Ministry opportunities. Let's pray.